0: From Lubbock Community Theater, this is Five Till Places.
1: Thank Thank you, Five. five.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of LCT's Five Till Places. I am Jed. I am Heather. And we have a special guest in with us today, a professor at Texas Tech University, a published author, do you uh,
2: introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I am Dr. Brian Keith Hodgkins. I am a recently tenured faculty member at Texas Tech, College of Ed, uh, higher education program uh, from uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Grew up and raised there. Uh, recently published, My Black is Exhausted, Forever in Pursuit of a Racist Free World where Hashtags Don't Exist, which is loosely about um, being able to negotiate race, to navigate the geographies of racism, while we're mindful of our levels of racial exhaustion, right? So we want to keep mm-hmm. those low, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and partly about just my journey from being a, a young person to now, and you know how, how I construct myself as living in this world. And it's something I feel like a topic that doesn't get, or at
0: least that I don't see touched on a lot, is racial exhaustion
1: especially especially i think in our in our area in our region i think people shy away from it they're either too delicate with it even when they try to or it's white centered voices trying to talk about it as well and so i think that that's thank you for joining us congratulations on the year, by the way oh, yeah, I thank you. About Congratulations, thank you. Yes. <laughs>
2: i appreciate it it's, it's like the, um i can't compare it to to anything is it like it's an achievement it's one of those Like earning my PhD, i only do that once. Mm -hmm. Getting tenure, i only do that once, right? And so it is the enormity of the accomplishment is not lost on me. And I'm still just trying to make sense of all of the work I did over -hmm. the last four and a half years, Mm -hmm. you know, as a person of African descent. um, So for instance, there are like 600 and... So there are 1,632 professors at Tech. Yeah. Of those... Uh, 46 are of African descent, 23 men, 23 women. Of those, only 19 are tenured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's um, it was a difficult journey, you know, but it, it is obviously achievable. But I'm still, still soaking it in and making sense of it all. Processing right? that. Yeah, <laughs> processing so that stuff. Yeah, it is. <laughs>
1: Understandably so. Um, Yes, congratulations, but shines a light on that there needs to be more roads to it I think obviously well we're excited about this book Um, when you when my friend Treva was the one who first talked to me about you and was talking about how amazing you were and how you you had just this wonderful way of articulating um, thoughts that needed to be said and I first met you and I was like oh my gosh I want to read I want to read this book I want to get to know you um, tell us about why you decided to start this book.
2: Right. So for me, when I talk to individuals, I ask them to do one thing, really, is recall who you were pre-COVID and post-George Floyd, right? The 2020 was probably the year of self-reflection for everyone in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So COVID occurs. I, I can't imagine having... Made plans. I think about where I was on New Year's Eve, twenty nineteen. I thought about mm-hmm. all these plans I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I was going to do all these things, right? And so there are certain people who had a list of plans. They didn't make it to June first because they caught COVID. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think about those two things. And so as I as I so I watched George Floyd die. He he totally dies May twenty fifth, twenty twenty, and I begin to have these conversations really with myself about. As a man of African descent, where am I safe in America? Yeah. Right? Mm. So I think about uh Brianna Taylor is killed while sleeping in her place of residence, right? Amar yeah. Arbery is killed while jogging outside. And so there's just a list of black lives that are erased. It just got me to thinking about, you know, like again, can I be safe? Right? And so cause so as a man, I grew up in a patriarch. You know, I was raised to believe, you know, I'm strong. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm all of these things, like what a, a man is, right? Mm-hmm. And part of that is the ability to protect oneself and family. And for the first time in my life, I began to question, like, to what extent is that even possible? For me mm-hmm. be, to be a protector of not only people that I love, but also myself, right? And so the process of writing this book was not, I was not purposeful in doing so. Right, so I remember having after George Floyd dies, I had 17 conversations with white, with white friends or colleagues, just about white fragility, about white privilege, um, about white supremacy, about what's the role of a white ally. Um, And so, one of the conversations, a person asked me, "So, how are you doing?" And I said, "My black is exhausted." Right, like that was. I didn't know that would be the title at the time, but (laughs) that just I just was felt. I felt like, oh, I just can't. There's so many thoughts bombarding me that I can't even have process to t- time to process it before the next thought happens. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. intellectually, I was just exhausted. Plus, I was in the middle of t- the ten tracks. I was writing. There's so much uncertainty around academically and as it relates to me, you know, again, being alive. And so what I started to do was journal. Right. So I'm not. A, I'm not a journaler at all. <laughs> and so I just started to journal about, you know, what, like, who am I in this world? Who validates my life? Uh, how am I connected to my ancestors, my elders, my children? Like, just all these questions, right? And so eventually it, it becomes, it starts to be a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And so I sent it to a couple of my friends, and they were like, hey, you, you know, you need to make this a book. yeah And mm-hmm. I was like, nah. It's, just, <laughs> it's too much... Like a book is too much work, right in the right, middle of yeah. everything that's happening <laughs> so, a book yeah. is too much work, right, and so, as I start to formulate it, it's like a so because i'm I'm a son of hip hop right to me, the sequencing of a hip hop album is crucial. like what's the first song that I hear when I turn it on? Mm-hmm. What journey does it take me on sonically and lyrically? Where are you taking me mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. And so, as I begin to stop writing, like some of the chapters are four pages but some of them are 17 pages, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just, one thing that I did, and once I said I'm going to make this a book, I would just pray for for an ability to remember. If anybody wants to write a book, I'm telling you, the hardest part is remembering. <laughs> like, how did I see the world at nine? What was that memory? Right. Why is that memory important? Who was surrounding me? How, how did they help me interpret or make sense of it, right? All that's mm-hmm. important. So as I start to sequence the chapters, I'm like, okay, this... Does this make sense? I wanted to make sure that this is my least professorial project. right? So as a professor, there's an expectation of people that I show up and I, I'm talking about ontology, epistemology, axiology, hermeneutics, all that. right? But I'm like, I don't want this book to be that. I want When you read it, I need you to imagine us sitting on a porch. We got some too sweet tea that's going to like to give us diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> we got some... Super big cinnamon rolls, right? <laughs> and we just sitting down talking. I like right. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah, we down. I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> we sitting down talking. And so 16 chapters later, the book was done. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so like the cover art. So if this is the cover art for the book, at the time, there was this app that just came out called Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And so you had to get an invite to be on it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I got on Clubhouse and I was doing some talking, still trying to figure it out. And there was this guy on there that was an artist. And so he lives in Sicily, and so I saw a picture of his artwork, and I, which was the cover art, and I said, I have to have this art for my cover. Mm. And he was like, Well, I usually don't sell art to people, so explain to me why you need it. Right. And I said, Well, this is a picture of me, right? Like this. This. Notice how the skin is changing from it hardening from him having to deal with his exhaustion of constantly being bombarded with racial issues or racial anxiety or racial happenings in the world. He has a hole in the back of his head. I don't know if that hole is for ideation to get his thoughts out mm-hmm. or because his head just opened up from all being battered through life without right. having to deal with racism. Mm-hmm. And on his neck there's a, a set of wings. I said when I saw the picture I wondered does he ever get enough speed built up to fly mm-hmm. away from all the oppression that he's experiencing? Mm-hmm. And when I got through telling him, he was like, you can have it. <laughs> he was like, that's totally not it. Like, like everything you described, that is not what I drew when I went drawing it. Right? But if that's what you got from it. Right, yeah. <laughs> he said, that's what you got, then, then I'll sell it to you. Right. And so then once I got the cover, I was like, yeah, this is going to be something. Mm-hmm. Right. Because part of the book is I wanted to make sure. So there's a lot of conversation around. In 2019, so Kendi drops his book "How to Be Anti-Racist" mm-hmm. about being anti-racist. So he defines it well, but I wish he wrote a part two by telling you how to do it. Yeah, right. And so my final chapter is beyond racism. And so even though I have these conversations about what it means to negotiate race, to navigate the geography of racism, I wanted to have a final chapter that says, "Well, how do we? What is it like to live in a world with no racism?" Like, people don't ponder that question often. Some may, some may but I pondered it a lot. Mm-hmm. After watching the George Floyd, I was like, man, he died of a $20 counterfeit bill. Yeah. Right. And so I'm like, I wanted to give readers the final charge for, I need you as a reader, when you set this book down to start thinking, how would the world live in, in beyond, if there was no racism, how it exists, and what's my role in making that happen? Yeah. yeah
1: yeah I, and I the, the fact that you can bring up the whole journaling part and the, the, this it's so much about the mental health aspect of it of everything that you're dealing with and and showing the tools for I, that's what's so that's what enticed me even more so to this particular book and everything that you're trying to do is because you're not just talking about that part. you're talking and giving showing tools of how to help. Self care about it as you're going. I mean, and that cover art that is, yeah, it's that's a stunning piece. I mean, that's captivating in of itself. And then when you bring in the title and you bring in what it's about and what you're trying to do, I mean, this is going to blow up. I guarantee it. Look how I see, I see all the touring. Where are all the places have you already gone over this?
2: So, I did. So, I went to University of Michigan first at the end of last year, December. They had a mental health week, Mm -hmm. and so we talked about how racism is a psychopollutant,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? And how psychologically, physiologically, it can weigh on you. Because your racism, because of the stress that you experience, it truncates lives. Like there's research mm-hmm. that speaks to that, right? So I went there first, and then I uh, did Weaver State, and then Texas Western University, and then um, East Leopard Courthouse. House, did something for the roots, uh, then did University of Idaho. And so next up, going to do uh, Texas A&M, probably University of Utah, um, SMU, and then probably all the Salukis. I keep <laughs> Southern Illinois University. Yeah, Southern Illinois University. I mean, it's,
1: and if, I, so seeing all of that, even just regional, and, but the artwork coming, I mean, your thoughts and what you're putting out there is touching international shores even. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, and here, and here you are going to be at Little Lubbock
2: Community Theater. <laughs> well, I didn't say little. <laughs> you know, it, for me, the opportunity to present this, this work to people, because, again, it's really not about me. Even though the book is about my life, it's about creating a space mm-hmm. for everyone to have a discussion. Because mm-hmm. I didn't realize how hard. So most people go to work. They don't talk about race at work. Yeah. Yeah. They go to work. And they do their task. So whatever their area of expertise is, if I'm a Wells Fargo, I'm not talking about George Floyd being killed. I'm not. Or if I'm at a Nike, well, maybe Nike, I I may talk about it. But in in normal spaces, like you're not, you're just not having conversations. So I want to make sure that my work um, creates a space where we can have a conversation. So we can, where we can be naive, where we can um, garner an understanding. We may not be agreeable. Yeah. Right, but at least we can have a conversation about this is how I experience the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at least I can have a better understanding about how someone who is different than me lives this life.
1: So mm-hmm. I, in re, so one of the things that's different for us as as LCT, because we're bringing you in to have your um, the presentation over your book tour, which I'd like to ta- you to tell us a little bit how you're going to do that later. But you're also um, have encouraged us to start this book club. That way, maybe people can come in, they can read the book, go through it, through some of the chapters, and have that conversation. Um, that's what I think so unique about this particular project, is that part of it. Actually being able to delve into the text, be able to delve into, like you said, that discussion of having a safe space where the naivete can <laughs> come in, um, and those questions but it being safe for you or the the host or uh, people of color in the room or anybody who's in there to have a safe space to not not to get exhausted, I guess It's like we're trying to create that conversation um, with you and with you leading the way, and so we're grateful for that. Absolutely. What what do you hope that the book club establishes for us as this starting point?
2: Right. So. In, so in looking back, once I decided to make it a book, I did research. And two things that people said that stood out in my mind was, the first one was, they never get to talk to the person, that the author. Mm-hmm. So I buy your book at Barnes & Noble, and I read it, and I never, what's well, the odds of me seeing you in front of me, right? right? But the second one was that they don't like when a person is, their personality is verbose, but when they do the audiobook it's when I went to the mall, like, I was like, "So when I record my audiobook, it has to be personality, Yeah. right?" What I like about the book and thinking about the book club, which is why we put together the book club kit, was to say, "Okay, how do we help guide people through the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. But how does this conversation create community,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right?" And so when people have informed discussions, that when they when I, by the time I meet them, they'll say. You'd be I, I was amazed at how many people took the book out and said, well, on page 17, I got this highlighted. You said this, 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 and this. So what do you think about this, 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 and this? And I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, they, it, the book club creates a situation where you can sit down and say, well, what did the well, author mean? And then you can say, well, when we see him on this date.
1: And that book club kit is brilliantly put together because that actually makes organizations like us or organizations that are hoping to bring you to you make it so easy you make it so easy for us to even start and have that conversation that people really need to come in and contact you find out how to bring you out there talk hear your vision up front and when you do that audiobook, you don't have to have any worries about it because the way that you, you have such great, it's, this is coming from a theater person or a performing arts person, the way that you're, uh, the inflection and the dips in your voice is wonderful for that type of thing. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about that at all. You are not gonna be monotone across or boring to listen to. It's it's a, You have a wonderful speaking voice. well and speaking of the book club and everything that um people who attend the book club will get to interact and have that conversation and read through it with a group of people we hope everyone comes out for that um tell us more about what people can expect from your presentation
2: right so my presentation is going to be is going to be a mesh of visual uh, audio of acting of um reading really just giving us an opportunity so i use this as a metaphor so i grew up in musgrave in oklahoma city and as a young i may have been in middle school sixth grade we used to have to walk man like two miles to the bus stop right and so there was this one girl that i liked i won't say her name because she might be listening but i really (laughs) liked her and that's i learned the only reason why i learned how to double dutch it's because every morning the girls will be double-dudging yeah. at the bus stop, right? <laughs> and so, but the act of double-dudging is a metaphor for the process that I'm going to present, right? Yeah. It is you watching, waiting to hear something or ask something and then you jump in, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but, we, but together we're all turning the ropes, right? At the speed of the jumper because we want to make sure that no one falls, right? But, but it is a, du- the act of double dutch is it's really a celebration, right and is it is a who if who does it the fastest how many different things can you do you know but in this space it's going to be more about us co- collaborating together mm-hmm. right in a way where we all get something out of it so even if you don't say anything or ask any questions you'll still get something out of it cuz the, the way that I have it set up again it, it stimulates it gets you to to think about I show an image then I explain the image then I read a portion of the book then I show a gift and then I ask the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the format. So we're gonna we're gonna do eight chapters. Cause we got about ninety minutes. Yeah. So I'll do like eight chapters. And so it's gonna be the double duds, right? Where I just even as a professor, I don't lecture. Yeah. For two hours straight. Like that's why would I do that? Mm-hmm. I, I I tell <laughs> I tell my students I know what I think about the readings. Yeah. But what I don't know is what you think. Right. And so let's have a conversation together. Cause you may say something, you're twenty. The applicability of what we're reading to your real life at twenty when I was 20, there was no social media. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, I learned. In order for me to be a great teacher, I have to be a great learner. And so hopefully that's the process where everybody that comes, some of us teach, and some of us learn.
1: Well, now we also know one of the reasons why you're tenure.
2: Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right there. Well,
1: um no, I'm just really grateful and excited about this, not only for the book club, but for your presentation and you bringing your voice and this piece of art, because that's what it is, essentially. I think a book is... An just another way of artistic and creative expression. So, I'm ready. I'm ready for this to be accessible to the community. I'm ready to see as many people here as possible. Uh, we're going to list the link for where to buy the book, where you can get tickets. Um, but, t- absolutely, everyone needs to come to this book club beforehand so you can really be interactive on that, on the presentation, on the book tour.
0: Absolutely. And then, while, and uh, while we're here, we should talk, uh, too because I, I was noticing, uh, I feel like you're talking about bringing this piece of art, like the, the book is this one part of this whole mm-hmm. piece of art, the, the, one of the tools that is being used to create a conversation space. And uh, would, would you also like to talk about, and I know you've got excerpts you'd like, like to read. Oh, in. We that's also right. have the uh, talk about oh. the, the exhausted race art uh, exhibit that, that's also a part of the tour and a part of this, Conversation and this as is well. Jen
1: keeping us on track and remembering all the things that we want to do. I don't always do that. There are there
0: are times on this show where I'm like, I had a plan. Now I need to sit here for five minutes and remember what I wanted to ask. About it. So,
1: uh, yeah. So um, tell if you want to do a couple of uh, excerpts from your book and talk about some of the art that you put together.
2: Okay, so I will the Exhausted Radar Race Art Exhibit was it was born out of, again, my racial exhaustion, Mm -hmm. right? So as I'm in between writing the book, I'm also doing digital artwork, Mm -hmm. right? So my work is more, um, I use a Mac to make the artwork, right? And so I just wanted to make sure. So there are pieces, each one of the pieces is some of the pieces are named after chapters in the book, Mm -hmm. right? And so I wanted to make sure that there was parallel or overlap. Right. Right? So they they can stand alone. So the book, the cover art is a piece of art itself. The book narrative is artistic, Mm -hmm. right? But the Exhausted Race Art is a tool by which that I plan on using um, to get people to have a discussion about how they experience race. Mm -hmm. Right? And so currently there are nine pieces uh, that I've designed. Uh, So for instance, Karen's Tears is one of those is one of the names of the pieces of art, but it is also one of the chapters in the book. Mm-hmm. In the book, the chapter is about the hyper surveillance of black bodies of black beings by white women historically. Uh, and specifically, I, t- I talk about two people. I talk about, uh, for instance, I talk about Rachel Dolezal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I remember when she first when I first saw her on Good Morning America mm-hmm. talking to Matt Lauer, and she was essentially saying that I'm not white anymore. Right. Like right. I'm a black woman, and I was like, "What is what is that? Is that like that a thing?" Right. But she was like, "You know, it's it's a transracial. I'm transracial," and I was like, "Because because I've had the luxury of doing work uh, with transracial adoptive families who raise black children." So in Utah, uh, my wife and I created this this opportunity called a community village, mm-hmm. and so it, it was it was I want to say like a at the time of a four hour training about this is what it means to be black. This is, these are the nuances of what it means to be black. And because you are not black, you'll never have the experiential knowledge to teach your black children how to be black. Yeah. So what do you, how do you compensate for that? Right? Yeah. What do you read? Uh, where do you take them? Uh, with whom are you um, family? right? Uh, how do you, where do you go to church? Uh, where do you go to a mosque? Like all these details about how do you vet friendship, friends? How do you speak to teachers in K-12? Like, these are all the things you need to do to try to insulate your black child from racism. Right, mm-hmm. and so as, as I thought about that, about the community village and, and how that ties in, I wanted to make sure that when thinking about Rachel Dolezal and her saying that she was transracial, like that means something different in the transracial adopted community than what she's saying. Yeah, like, yeah. Like she's to me in blackface. Right. Yeah. As a white woman, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about Karen's tears uh, in the book, and so I just want to make sure that that I parallel some of the pieces of art with the book chapters, but I use the pieces of art to facilitate opportunities for persons to come together and discuss our experiences in art, right? So yeah. for instance, I may, if I went to Kansas City and I came in, I would bring three pieces of art with me, and the persons who were participating, we would look at each piece of art, and then they would either draw their art based on the topic. So if the topic is Karen's Tears, I would want you to draw a picture of how you've experienced the hyper of white women. Right, or someone, or someone that you know and love, or if you can't draw, write a narrative about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So at the end of a ninety-minute process, you would have three pieces of art or three narratives that connect all of us in the space. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not about how good the art looks. It's that. So I'm mindful too in doing research. Unless you do it for a living as an adult, there are a lot of things that we stop doing that are productive for us, like drawing, Mm -hmm. like being Mm -hmm. silly. Laughing out loud, like the, so drawing, like I, I asked part, people too, when's the last time you drew something?" People are like, "Why would I draw something?" <laughs> and I'm like, cut to express how you see the world, That's why yeah. you do it. I yeah. get it, you're 40. <laughs> right? But that doesn't 42, mean time you 42. should be drawing. But yeah <laughs> that doesn't mean you should stop drawing. Yeah. No. right And so I wanted to just create an opportunity with my art to go into communities and say, "Hey, did, how do you experience this topic?" And they'll say, well, this is, they'll explain, this is what my art is like, what it's about. And there are going to be other people that have similar experiences or different ones, right? So the purpose is for us to have an art activity where when we leave the space, I can have mementos that say that I'm not in this world alone, experiencing race is traumatic, so I'm connected to other people, Mm -hmm. right? So that's that's how the, the Exhausted Race Art Exhibit came about, that's how it ties into the book chapters. And so I want to share two excerpts okay. uh, of the book chapters. The first one is, False Sense of Security is the name of the book chapter. It's chapter two, pages uh, 31 uh, to 35. And so this section that I'm going to read is about um, Miles Morales, who was the first black and Latinx Spider-Man, mm-hmm. right? And so entering to the Spider-Verse, I remember how people were excited about it. Like, yeah. They were like, oh, we finally got somebody that looks like us a hero that's like us. And so when I go see it, I'm like, this is the most anti-black movie I've ever seen, hmm. right? And so so, I talk to my friends about how I interpret it. They're like, you're ruining it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't unsee what you, what you described, right? And so I want, I want to share an excerpt of it, and then we can talk about it on the, okay. on the back end. Miles Morales is the best Spider-Man ever. This particular iteration of the Spider-Man movie, the ethnic version, is complete with suspense, action, and anti-black sentiment. Which speaks to my being completely unsurprised at it being so notorious. The only thing standing between the city and oblivion is me. There's only one Spider Man, and you're looking at him, are the words of Peter Parker, as spoken during the introduction of the film. This declaration reinforces viewer beliefs that only he can be and is the hero. I despise this notion. The movie features Miles Morales, the first black and Latinx Spider Man who, unlike his white predecessor, is not is not the only hero, and at the end of the film, he is distinctly told, anyone can wear the mask. You can wear the mask. Translation, even after stopping the multiverse from collapsing, he is not only not the hero, but his triumph is reduced to a mere something that anyone can achieve, the caucasity. The story's anti-black narratives are layered. First, Miles comes from a lower middle-class background, but is brilliant enough to test his way into Brooklyn Visions Academy, which is on the other side of town and his budding love interest, Gwen, is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl. Second, as it pertains to the presence of a young black woman, there's not a single character who fits this category, not even a secondary one. What bothered me most about the movie is how nefarious the expectations of whiteness can be overwhelming, almost to the point where the clear hero, Miles, completely doubts his ability to save the day, save the Spider-Verse. Fourth, he is clumsy, unsure, and is even without a modicum of confidence. Fifth, None of the alternative spider man believe he is capable of being a leader, devising a plan of intervention, or even worthy of completing the mission. Ultimately, Miles destroys the Collider, returns the Spider-Team, defeats Kingpin in a Fist battle, and even makes a fan of his father for the new Spider-Man. Miles concludes by making the final anti-black claim of the film. Anyone can wear the mask. You can wear the mask. If you didn't know that before, I hope you do now. I'm Spider-Man, but I'm not the only one not by a long shot. This realization was anticlimactic. When there is final, finally a Spider-Man who is Black and Latinx, he is relegated to sharing the responsibility and the glory of protecting his city, while in every other Spider-Verse, there's a single Spider hero. In the current timeline, we can all be the hero, which is untrue." And so that, that segment, to me, it is about again this notion of I finally have a hero that I can look up to, but he's not really the hero, yeah. even in his own city. You
1: just blew my mind there <laughs> yeah, with that excerpt. That's I am I unpacking everything that I just heard because yeah. I have I have uh, shameful to say I've I have not heard that perspective on it, mm-hmm. and oh my. I, Wow. Okay. Okay. That. Yeah. That's why these conversations have to be had because I would never have thought that, and that's 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 a shame. That's a shame that I've not thought that.
2: Um, and so I, I do admittedly I realize that my nerd don't translate well. <laughs> and so I, I made a list. I've seen eleven hundred and thirty four movies. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I, I cite a lot of movies in the book, but right. yeah, most of my sense of making up the world is tied to film.
0: Yeah. Or yeah.
2: lyrics. Yeah. Right. and so. I'm always and thinking about any film. So, for instance, as I as I think about movies and how they impact, how they are stereotypes are woven in. Yeah. But I think about the ones that stand out. Are, for instance, the Matrix, the very first Matrix. So Morpheus, who's the black man, right, who trains Neo, believes in Neo more than Neo believes in himself. But Neo is the savior of the community. So when they when they go to the community it's mostly black and brown people in, the un- in this underground community mm, mm-hmm. right? that neo-liberates. Right. Right? So then I think about it as a parallel, I think about uh, Dancing with Wolves. It's an older movie. Dancing yeah. with Wolves, they have the white Union soldier who essentially becomes indigenous. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by, the, by the end of the movie, he speaks a language, the people completely trust him, and he's leading them. Yeah. Right? When they're under siege. I think about it as a parallel to Asian, commun- uh, Asian American communities. I think about The Last Samurai about how yeah. about how the gent the general who has who's been taught to be a warrior since he was five brings tom trust Tom Cruise enough to put have him stand by his side yeah and fight for the liberation of their people, but the most egregious movie is um oh, what's the name of the movie with the uh blue characters oh avatar avatar mm-hmm. that this is what got me the most, and I said, okay so I get that the main character is a white male. He's not he has to go into avatar mode to interact with the people, mm-hmm. right? But when the when the granddaughter of the previous king tells a story about the mythical bird that only connects to the next leader of the people, mm-hmm. that it did with, like it did with her grandfather, it connects to the avatar guy. Yeah. Who's the white male? Who was go- who had betrayed them? Right? Yes. He was yes, the reason yes. He was the reason why that they were bombarded and attacked to begin with. He betrayed them and he ends up falling in love with the with the granddaughter and you know, he gets to lead the people in the resistance. And I'm like, come on.
1: So what I'm hearing is we also need to have a cinema club where we talk about <laughs> movies regularly and you will come in and talk with movies because we're, we're, we, you're talking with a group of people that do talk film quite a bit. Oh, okay. I would say we talk film because okay. we've got our digital performing arts program. We have people who are short filmmakers and all of that. And we talk film a lot and I, I yeah. still so, so film club coming up? Yeah, Film well, club it. too. Let's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely.
0: And the, yeah, that's... Avatar being particular, like I feel like that's you can kind of sum up the filmography filmography of James Cameron that way. It, it like James Cameron making a white savior movie doesn't surprise me too much because I feel like James Cameron does a lot of self-aggrandizement. Mm. And it's very <laughs> like a lot of it is very. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that his big movie came out. It's like like his, his big story was because that wasn't even just centered on. I feel like even the white man saving the indigenous people was secondary to just this white man's journey. Right. Right. That
2: whole the whole movie was. Yeah. Just... It, it was a perfect. To me, it was the perfect example of colonization, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. There are, the government is in collusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's the it's capitalism at its finest. Yeah. Where you have a person who says, "Okay, this land, we there are resources in this land, we need to." negotiate to see if we could reach some type of agreement. No? Okay. So we'll take the we'll land. We'll just take it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right? And, we'll and, just, and, we'll and take the land we, and relocate the people. Right. From the we laser. as society fed them. right into it. It them. became yeah.
1: one of the highest grossing films to date, right? right and right. That, that's what the sad part is, is that we, as a society, well, fed that capitalist machine and go, yeah, we apparently wanted that content. ridiculous. Because
0: because it is it's a movie that is designed to make us as white people feel better about uh to to look like it's being very progressive Mm -hmm. and very inclusive Mm -hmm. and and help Uh us feel better because I've I've, uh, one of the things I have had to confront and still confronting daily in my own life is uh, racist ideas and things that I was raised with that didn't realize until later ideas Mm. Were racist because we, as white people, love to look at really overt, violent, angry, loud racism. We can look at yeah. you know the Klan and lynching and and um, segregation and slavery and and look at those and think, like, well, that's racism, that's evil. Of course, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. But thank God, that's all in the past now, and and we don't we can acknowledge that as evil, and we don't see. The subtle everyday things that are in our own lives that are also violence that are also racism that w- we don't confront that because when we have when we're forced to confront those things we're like well, well that's not how dare you call me i'm th- th- i'm not a I'm not wearing a white hood and burning cross, so i'm not a racist, and like right. that's the only bar for it to be. Racism. So I would, yeah. I would say even
1: our our response to when you said uh, <laughs> the Last Samurai, you had talked about Spider uh, Spider Verse and all of those, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What? Real? Whoa!" We both were like, "Oh yeah, Last Samurai. That's law. That's that's awful." Right. Even that reaction I saw right here. I was like, <laughs> we had that obvious reaction to that one, but we were like, "Oh, I didn't."
0: But but Spider Verse isn't like that like surprise. to me that's yeah. such a yeah. that
1: even that's just telling. Like when we're when we're Uh, congesting all the media that we do Mm -hmm. it's so it's just so easy to not think about that and
0: so because we live in a world that is designed to make us
2: feel better yeah there's a scene in the Spider-Verse where he's driving his son to school Mm -hmm. and you can see the gentrification in the background yeah Mm -hmm. like the buildings are changing everything is changing As they're driving from the impoverished part of town that his father and his family lives in To Brooklyn Visions Academy, where it's, uh-huh. you know, everything is new and shinier, and yeah. and so as you talk about what you said about the old days of crosses burning in yard, in my father's era, father graduated in nineteen fifty six. That era is over yeah. in yeah. some places. For the majority right. of places, it's <laughs> over, right? But the subtleties of gentrification, yeah, right. right? Like I was, I was uh, an NPR. I can't think of the name of it of the show, but they talked about how. Through Wells Fargo, how how nefarious they're being again? Yeah. About how forty three percent of white people that have bank accounts were allowed to refi on their homes, yeah. but only six percent of black people were. Yeah, yeah. And just how much millions of dollars were lost or gained in the white community and lost in the black community mm-hmm. just by the inability to refinance at a one percentage rate difference. If yeah. you went from, from f- four to three yeah. percent on a you know four hundred thousand dollar home over thirty years. Yeah, you know, and so it's yeah, the the subtlety of the it's the subtleties of racism. Yeah. Mm. That if you're not, you know, I had a student. This is an example. Had <laughs> a student say to me once, as I was actually, after I thought got through. That she said, uh, "Dr. Hoskins, you don't have to talk like that. You could just be yourself." Right. And I said, "Uh," <laughs> I said, "So whether we're talking about the top five greatest MCs ever, or we're talking about." Equity and access in higher ed. Yeah. However I deliver verbally, it's me. Yeah. But I heard her saying I was pretending intellectual. Mm. Like you can't fake. I can't fake intellect. Right? Yeah. My vocabulary is not necessarily an indicator of my intellectual prowess, but I think it's a, a criterion for my mastery of the content. Yeah. Right. And I heard her saying essentially, you're pretending to be smart. So you don't have to talk like that. You can just be yourself. And that's the subtleties of why another example of why my, my you know I'm racially exhausted, why yeah. my black is exhausted because I just have to because deal everything with everything those types of things. bombardment of <laughs> It is yeah. it is. Yeah, and I want to share this second this second and final excerpt. Okay. This from a chapter uh, Pursuing white Adjacency," chapter five 85 uh, to 87. There is a show on Netflix called "Passing." Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You have to watch it. -hmm. Right, so if you want examples of, and I won't say who it is, who I won't, I won't give any spoilers, but passing Django and uh, Django Unchained and Boondocks, these three characters that are these three characters are anti-black, right? Mm -hmm. And so in everything that they do or say or the way that they think, they're anti-black. And so I want to share this uh, this segment for you, and we can talk about on the back end. The final symptom of a black, indigenous, or person of color who is in pursuit of white adjacency is that they completely believe white validation of their existence, actions, perspectives, and performance of race is prime in order to function. You've met them. They're your best friends. Some live in your neighborhood. Some of you are married to them. Some of you are raising them to be compliant adults. They've unjustly fired you. They've told you that your hair was unprofessional and the question, why didn't you change it? They switch doctors once they find out that they are not white. Some have responded, why didn't they just comply? Others of them have told you to your face that you are pretty for a black girl and thought it was a compliment. A few of them don't celebrate Black History Month. More of them could care less that Colin Kaepernick was allegedly banned from playing in the National Football League for kneeling. When Barack Obama was elected, they proclaimed America a post-racial society. They hate the legacy of the Black Panther Party the bravado of Malcolm X, and the defiance of Angela Davis. They ask, why do we need a black national anthem? Some of them incessantly argue that Jesus was white, which is historically inaccurate, but still. They love nearly everything that white people love. Some of them want to be white. You know them intimately. You cringe when they claim historically black colleges and universities are inferior. You laugh when they claim the the sitcom Friends was better than Girlfriend's. You give them super side-eye when they chose Black Tree Boys and Millennium over Jodeci's The Show, The After Party, and Hotel as the best album of the 90s. You don't eat their mac and cheese. You don't share their combs. You even avoid having play dates that can lead to your children spending the night at their homes. Most importantly, you understand why they think Eminem is the gold MC, though you rarely debate it. In fact, although you completely get it, that they are proud to be the only black, indigenous, or person of color at their job in their doctoral programs or on the board of directors, you also despise them for it. They can't key well. Every action has a purpose and theirs is to be the only one in every setting. They experience complete comfort knowing that they are the sole focus of white people and are increasingly jealous when other black folks are present. Any distraction is problematic. They hope to be completely embraced by whiteness; hence, the quest to be white adjacent. They never rock the boat. They never marshal black lives. They never engage in activism on social media. They never stand in solidarity. They never interrupt racism. There is an, is an existence of need that converges with want and self-loathing. They view achieving the American dream as synonymous with becoming white or securing white acceptance. They disagree that white privilege, white fragility, and white colonization are real or ever existed. And so that after I read that section on the place that I've been on tour, my question is, what are your thoughts or feelings about people who internalize racism? And the responses are just overwhelmingly mind-blowing <laughs> <laughs> and, and nuanced around these notions of what is the value of being white in a racist society versus being black indigenous or a person of color. Right. I saw I recently saw a um Trevor Noah did this piece on his show where he where he cut it spliced in all these um reporters talking about Ukraine Mm. and Russia Mm. and talking about how these type of people don't deserve this. And we would expect this type of insurrection um in Muslim nations or countries Mm. or African nations or countries, right? And just painting this narrative that it is it it is an extremely um sad moment in time that this is happening to white people in ukraine but in any other moment in time like rwanda or something it's Mm -hmm. just it just happens it's just it's just them killing themselves that's my my wife
0: was actually bringing up that very same thing like when russia was first threatening to invade when it was just kind of the, the the outcry against it, like, what, well, yes, of course we care about Ukraine. And we, like, this is not to diminish that situation at all, but it is interesting that, 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 that there was such outcry and such, like, mourning for the people of Ukraine. But just like five years ago or something, when it was Syria, <laughs> right, you know, it was same people were like, well, don't bring them here. You know, yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah, the the the, the 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 there was a very different response to invasion and war and crisis happening to non-white people on the other side of the planet than when it happens to white people on the other side right. of the planet.
2: Yeah, mainly about what do we do with the refugees? Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. When the, whatever, do, is it, do we want them okay melding into?
2: The yeah, do it we want them mean. melding into our culture? How yeah. how do we want our children playing with their children? And there were, yeah, they were exactly like because I see so much overwhelming support of
0: of Ukrainian refugees, and 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 again,
1: here's my house, no here's an open door, yeah, but where? No,
0: was that? no one is saying there shouldn't be, but 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 the but the point is that when, when a few years back when we were seeing Syrian children hiding in the forest because their town had been leveled, yeah. the, a lot of Americans were saying like. We don't have room for them here. don't bring them here. what are we how are we supposed to take care of? Them? We have our own problems <laughs> right. you know right and and but now with with a group of white refugees, it's very like this is
2: injustice and horrible
0: you know and yeah. and, and th- 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 like they're both injustice and horrible, but we're only acknowledging the one right yeah.
2: but yeah, <coughs> I just want to share that too that's and that, that's part of what to expect. Yeah mm-hmm. when, we, when we do our performance here.
1: Powerful conversations that need to be had. Absolutely. Thank oh. you for, Thank you for spearheading it and, and bringing yes. it to the forefront. And like I said, I, I value and respect the ease of accessibility that it, you have brought with it. You've created the book club kit. You've, you've written this book to help those conversations start. You make it, Well, I mean, you make it really easy for white people. (laughs) And you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that, but you have.
2: And so... And I I want it to be easy for everyone. Yeah. Right. Right? To... Mm -hmm. There are... It amazes me. So I've met people who've never left Lubbock. Yeah. Live here their whole lives. I've met people who haven't been on the west side or east side of Lubbock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Their whole lives. Right. Right? Right. And so I'm like, how can you... How can you have... Empathy for difference if you've never interacted with it. Yeah. Right? Like, who's informing your perspective of the east side to the point where you won't journey on the east side? Mm -hmm. Or what told you I shouldn't be on the west side? Right? If you haven't had the luxury of interacting with people from those sides of town to see, although we're different in these aspects, this is our commonality. And how can we connect around our commonality?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So well, yeah.
1: thank you for coming to Love Community Theater. I'm hoping and L C T is definitely trying to make those strides of I mean, I've been in the art community for a long time and, and, and those those differences do a lot of the time feel separated. So I think that we're trying to to build a community center space where everyone can feel safe and inclusive and Different art organizations can come here, whether it's uh, you coming in for the book tour, or the West Texas Dancing Raider Reds, or even our programming. We've the the effort is to make sure that we have more diverse leadership, and it's not just people coming in; it's people leading those programs and leading it, being in charge of that conversation, and not just not just me, not just. Uh, and and uh, that's what I hope that we can try to do is start building that bridge where there is. A community center space that really feels like community, and it's not just talk. Yeah, I think so, having
0: conversations like this is part of the process because yeah. it's like before we can do, we can talk about our intent and our desire yeah. to create that kind of space, yeah, but we, we don't different. we don't pretend that like we're there, we've achieved yeah. diversity, and we're good now. But we're Yeah. before any. part of that has to be having these conversations like the ones you're trying to facilitate here. And and we tend to shy away from them because we think of them as being scary and difficult. And particularly, I think, uh, white folks will shy away from it because we feel like we're going to have to feel something bad about ourselves or be convicted or be... um, But there are things that we need to confront. And I think people of color also might get shied away from these conversations because it may feel like I've been trying to have this conversation all my life and nobody wants to listen or it's always met with pushback. Why do you want to listen now? Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's... So, everybody ready to sign up? I'm ready to come. I'm ready to hear you speak. Um, I'm excited
1: about this. I'm telling you, I really want to do the the film club at this point now. I really mean that. Like, book club, film club, let's do it all. Let's have the conversations regularly. Because that's the thing too. It's not just about now. It's about continuing it Past right. this Absolutely. and keeping it going mm-hmm. so um, so the, the, all the information is going to be on the website okay. we're going to lead it to to the book we want everyone to pick it up we're going to have we have copies of the book here at LCT right now mm-hmm. when you sign up for that book club you can come pick up that book from us right now including we'll have some extra journals as well because I mm-hmm. think that's one of the most that's really the coolest little extra part on there is actually that journal we didn't even really get to talk about that much but um, that level of self-care and journaling that you talked about where you kind of also provided a way for that so yeah. all right
0: well and then the talk itself will be on April 30th 7:30 p.m. right here LCT and uh, tickets for that are also available on the website mm-hmm. so it's all yeah all that information will be up there get yourself a copy of the book join the book club go through the book bring your thoughts with you on April 30th and we will have a conversation
2: please do yes, yes. Yeah, indeed. Well, <laughs> looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well,
0: thank you so much for being here with us today and for taking time out of your day to talk to us and bring your art for us to look at and highlight and, and everything else. So uh, I guess that's where we will sign off. Until next time, this has been Five Soul Places. Thank, thank you. five.
1: Yeah, thank you. five. <laughs>
0: Five Till Places is a production of Lubbock Community Theater. Be sure to follow us on social media for all the latest news and updates surrounding our projects and the goings-on at LCT. Our theme music is Pizza and Video Games by Bonus Points. A link to that artist and their music can be found in the show notes. Look them up. Give them some support. Thanks for being with us this week. And as always, thank you for supporting live theater in the Lubbock, Texas area and beyond.